Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Christy Vogler. And today, uh, we are unfortunately down Eli, but uh, we're going to be talking, digging into the film today is Marvel's Eternals, the 2021 superhero film in the MCU, directed by Chloe Zhao. And joined with us today is a special guest, return uh, expert in the the archaeological and the pseudo-archaeological, David S. Anderson. David, thank you. Really glad we could get you on the show. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, yeah thank back. you guys for having me back. Uh, this is the, uh, I think we talked about doing this film the first time, but it is, uh, Crystal Skull was an easier start. <laughs> yeah, no, because yeah, we, we were talking and then this was one that sort of naturally came up, I think, and we were originally discussing films and this one's been on sort of our radar for a while. But yeah, we'll, we'll start, uh, we'll start with David. Uh, do you dig this movie? Oh gosh, um, <laughs> no, no, I, I think there's everything about this movie is, um, it's weird and problematic on so many ways. And, you know, I think it's like they tried to make a very modern superhero movie, but they insisted on using, although they transformed a lot, some pretty old source material. And that source material, unfortunately, is uh, directly directly emulating uh, Eric von Donneken's 1968 Chariots of the Gods, which for those uh, who are not directly familiar, this is its not the origins of the ancient alien idea. We can actually plumb those depths a little bit tonight, I'm sure. But uh, it's the popularization moment of the ancient alien claim, which inherently suggests all, over and over again that indigenous people could not have built pyramids and buildings and other things without some sort of elect- extraterrestrial help. And uh, I, I think like my... My biggest consternation with this film is that there was such a direct attempt to uh, present a diverse cast and a, an untraditional director for Hollywood, especially for a superhero film. Yeah. And there's so in other words, there's like this there's a lot of uh, awareness on the surface that is masking some very deep racial problems mm-hmm. that are laid out sort of in this storyline. Were you familiar with the like the com like the Jack Kirby comics before the movie, or did it was this movie kind of the the, the gateway to that for you? Oh no, that, yeah, this is this has been on my radar for a while, and I'd read the original Kirby comics, uh, uh, which came out in the. I was just double checking; the first one was in 1976, and it was a yeah. relatively short storyline with Jack Kirby. Uh, and um, Kirby, it, it's really interesting because Kirby uh, was one of the big writers and artists for Marvel uh, when Marvel first had its heyday in the Silver Age in the early 1960s. And he had some falling outs with uh, Stan Lee, who was the other big uh, force at uh, Marvel at the time. And uh, this was how Kirby came back to Marvel. And it was like mm-hmm. he got, it was promised to let him draw, you know, write this book. And the really interesting thing, um, there's sort of a bookended issue here. Kirby was writing ancient alien stuff in the early 60s before Eric Von Donneken's 68 book came out. And then The Eternals comes out in 76. And uh, so it's Kirby's revisiting. In fact, there's some really, uh, there's a lot of echoes between some of the stuff. Uh, it's uh, some early Fantastic Four uh, materials in uh, 19, it's like Fantastic Four number 64, which I think comes out in the seven or something like this. It comes out before Von Donneken's book uh, has sort of the same beginning as Eternals number one does. Uh, and so it's like, but there's things in the Eternals book that deliberately references some of Eric Von Donneken's materials. It's, yeah, I think one of my favorite or favorite sort of problematic moments is in Eternals number one, there's the letter to the, the readers from Kirby. 
Kirby himself, uh, where he uh, winks and nods, where he's like, this might be true. Mm-hmm. You don't know. It could really be true. And so when, when, when Marvel said they were going to make this movie, I was just like, guys, why? Like, why? Like, you don't have to do this. You can leave your old problematic stories on the shelf and not return them to the limelight. And they did anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I watched this movie the first time on a flight to or from Italy, pretty deep into the flight, too. So like weird state of mind uh, to be watching it for sure. And the Eternals as characters, as influence for different mythological figures, I'm sure we're going to unpack all of that, but I'm just like, this makes the least amount of sense in a lot of ways to me <laughs> compared to other things that exist in the Marvel universe. And probably the closest was Thor and the Norse gods and Asgard, um, which was already kind of ancient aliens going on. And so like this whole aspect of like, oh, Athena, not Athena, but inspiration for Athena and robot has mind weird things happening. And I'm just like, what is happening here? And I think that's why it fell flat in a lot of ways, just as like a general superhero movie of it's so it feels really out of place. And I agree with you, David, that like this one probably could be left on the shelf and it would have been perfectly fine. It, it is an interesting thought exercise just sort of on the on the stuff of like why like of all of the the things to go back in the in the archives and in the inventory that Marvel has, like, why did they pick Eternals and in this stage? And I wonder because if it was something like where like Guardians of the Galaxy was a bit of like before the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, they were kind of C-listy, you know, B-list, C-list tier. And maybe the idea was like, you know, we kind of struck gold with that. Maybe we could do it. You know, maybe we could repeat it where, you know, the logic being David mentioned, you know, we'll pick, we'll pluck an up and coming indie director. Chloe Zhao had not, I think when she was hired, she hadn't won the Oscar yet, but was quickly going to. Um, so, you know, the kind of that formula and it's, it's almost like you can see the sort of studio algorithm being like, you know, pick C list sort of group of superheroes, pluck indie director who's on the rise, give them a mil- couple million dollars or, or a billion. I'm not sure how much I can look at how much this movie costs, but it's probably like a billion dollars and hire a bunch of stars and then like, you know, print money. And then even we were talking a little bit about this when last week we were talking or Last episode, we were talking with with Jason Nethercutt about the Thor movies uh-huh. and the where was I going with this? Oh, and the in the sort of it doesn't always like even among Marvel movies, like Marvel movies sort of generally one of the things, you know, whether you like the MCU or not, but like they generally have a good sort of quality control level or like even the worst ones are still pretty functional as movies, although I would say this one oh. is. Oh, but can we go Love and Thunder for a second? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Well, so this is – I have yeah. a, a couple of thoughts about my, my sort of thesis. Like there's things that I like, and I think there's some there's some interesting ideas sort of buried in this movie. But it, the the most interesting things – there's all, first of all, there's just like a lot of things happening in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but the most interesting things they kind of don't focus on, and they focus on the less interesting things. And one of the big things is kind of the initial premise that like, yeah, David was talking about is that the gods and you know, all of these different mythological systems and gods and, and really even human sort of progress mm-hmm. is, has been guided by these 
aliens essentially whether they're robots or something like that yeah um, there, there's some there's some interesting transformations that uh, i think we should talk about of between sort of who the eternals were originally and who they became in this film mm-hmm. but uh, to address briefly the why did they make this choice I, one of the things that sort of surprised me because they announced this movie pretty early on with the end of phase three as phase four was starting and i assumed uh because the uh, the obvious connection between Phase Three and Phase Four, from my perspective, when they announced the Eternals, was that Thanos, the big bad from Phase mm-hmm. Three mm-hmm. and Phase One and Phase Two, I guess, uh, he's an Eternal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is actually his lineage and origin in the comic books. And so I assumed that was going to be the rationale, like, oh, we've got to do the Eternals now because we have to explain who Thanos was. But then they mm-hmm. left that. They very exceedingly vaguely alluded to it with the post-credits scene. Yeah, where Harry, Styles shows, and Harry up. Styles shows yeah. up as Eros, who is, like, as I understand it, uh, Thanos's brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like they're... they're that, that was the justification as far as I could tell of like, why should we make this movie? But then they just completely let it go. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, my other sort of thought is like to that. Yeah. Like where, where, if you look at, you sort of take a step back and you look at kind of like the, the breadth of Marvel, like in phase four, they're really, it seems to be broadening out the world, mm-hmm. whether that's through different universes, like what's, what's going on with Dr. Strange or space sort of more broadly, you know, like now we can go broader and broader and broader and sort of get mm-hmm. to, you know, all these sort of different stories. And the Eternals is one way to do that. But this movie kind of maybe inadvertently like introduces all these little weird wrinkles in like, if you just even think internally to the MCU universe and what we know about it, like, I mean, just little stuff. Like there's two jokes about DC superheroes. There's like mm-hmm. a Batman joke and a super, which is like kind of like the implications of if those comic books are real in this universe and like what's going on there. Uh, but even stuff with like the way, like the universe kind of like the cosmology, because one of the things we kind yeah. of got a little bit, I more so than others got a little bit hung up about when we were talking about Thor was like, the interesting idea of like what are the gods doing for us and should we get rid of the gods is a good one, but it becomes tricky because in this universe, it's very unclear what is and is not a god because we've got sort of yeah. Asgardians who are maybe aliens, maybe gods. We've got the Celestials who are kind of godlike, and then the Eternals really like throw the biggest wrinkle in because they are yeah, yeah. the inspiration for a lot of these. Like the mythological systems are simultaneously real. Like Asgard's a place and Olympus is uh-huh. a place you could go to, you know, see Zeus or Odin or whoever, but then also there are these other figures who are like a sort of slant version of mythological gods and goddesses, like Thena. <laughs> who is a god and what is a god in the MCU now is becoming of really super muddied waters. And Love and Thunder, Thor Love and Thunder really muddied those waters more with their, their trip to, I forget what they yeah. called it, but they went to the, the home um, of the, omnipotent the real city. gods. The yeah. omnipotent city, there we go. Yeah, it's like where they're mm-hmm. the real gods and you can only get in there if you were a real god. And that's that's one of the, they they uh, took the Eternals down a notch for this film because mm-hmm. um, the sort of the original origin story is the Celestials came to Earth and the Celestials created the Eternals, the Deviants, and humans, mm-hmm. uh, and they were all and, and in essence the Eternals were. I mean, this is where like Kirby really was cribbing Von Doniken. Like the Eternals were the gods that mm-hmm. humans just sort of misidentified. Yes, uh, and the Deviants were the devil and the demons that people misidentify. So they totally transformed the, de- the, the deviants for this movie, making them this sort of external peril that Earth was facing rather than sort of gods and devils of Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, and yeah, so it's, it's, I was having a conversation with some other folks about this recently. It's like, there, 
the MCU has gone heavy cosmology and the Eternals was a big part of like, what is the cosmological makeup of the MCU? And they have really like muddied the waters here uh, of uh, like, what is a deity and what is divine and what is a fake mm-hmm. God or what is an almost God. And that, you know, like we're going to have, we got Hercules coming now, apparently mm-hmm. who's going to be like a semi divine God. <laughs> like, yeah. Got a and, lot of muddied waters. And it also, there's this, it creates this weird relationship with like myth and myth tradition where like, I keep thinking so like they say that like basically one of the Eternals, sprite who's kind of like the illusionist mm-hmm. and the showmaker and the and like her role it was kind of to kind of like inspire humans with storytelling uh, and it says that she basically invented the icarus myth to mm-hmm. to you know poke fun at her friend icarus and then at the end of the film icarus flies into the sun in the sort of like fulfillment of the myth but it's like mm-hmm. this weird like he you know the myth is about him but he's like reenacting the myth that's mm-hmm. also and so he creates this, it's like a it's a like an ouroboros where like the circle just eats itself yeah um, yeah yeah that was kind of my thought of like where this category of gods was was more the idea and i think like this is where the diffusionist kind of aspect was coming in for me it was like all stories we we talk about like the hero's journey and everything like that like have kind mm-hmm. of these central themes and this is really kind of piling on the idea that sprite or the internals themselves are the true inspiration for all versions of mythological stories that we have and that's mm-hmm. why you have um these names that are represented in a bunch of different mythologies and religions but they're actually part of one collective so that was definitely the element of diffusion that is part of atlantis is part of ancient aliens that was really coming through and was problematic and like what david was saying earlier like kind of one of the the the, the root kernel of of the problem with both the source material and and, and sorry, i'm gonna go on a jack kirby rant later but oh, uh, like the root kernel with with like the problem is that like the movie sort of supplies the idea that like all human development and progress whether that's technology through like festus who is basically inventing stuff for us or he's showing us technology or storytelling like sprite or or whatever like we owe our whole civilization Mm -hmm. the plural to these eternals who have been guiding us and then the reveal spoilers is that we're 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 being grown like a petri dish to feed a space god uh the birth Mm -hmm. of a space god and the eternals who were created to sort of uh, facilitate this process have like a sort of moment of reckoning Mm -hmm. you know they they defy their creators basically but that's the sort of like what dave was saying that the the problem is it, it really undercuts particularly a lot of indigenous cultures, um, mm-hmm. but, but culture sort of broadly to say that like human beings haven't really like we, we, we needed some sort of outside help to do anything. Yeah, there's an inherent assumption in all ancient alien claims that humans are dumb, mm-hmm. you know, that they, they couldn't have invented, you know, any you know, metallurgy or steam engines as Hephaestus gives us. Uh, or like a plow, and, right? Or like, yeah, I, or mentioned, plow. I, yes, I wrote to my, in invented. my notes, I'm like, in 575 BC, I feel like we figured out the plow by then, right? Like yeah. the Babylonians have plows down. <laughs> yeah. But what do I know? Well, and I, I'm also questioning too, like the names that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but these are all from what we term as the old world. Like these are all old world mythological names and we don't have any. Yeah, it's because it's from it's, North yeah, South America. It's mostly Greek and Roman with like Ajax, yeah. Mercury, Circe, and then a couple of, you know, Gilgamesh. I think in the original comics, Kingo is like a samurai or something like that. Or like he's a little yeah. different, I think. That sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, it's, it's very Greco-Roman oriented. And I think that speaks a lot to, you know, uh, 
unquestioned uh, prejudices of the original authors and whatnot and, and mm-hmm. the audience they were writing for and what they would have expected and, and wanted. Yeah. And it's funny, too, how also like like some of them are like a, a letter off, like you've got, you know, Thena and Makari, who, you know, just a slight, you know, like a slightly different spelling pronunciation. And then you get Gilgamesh, which is just remains unchanged. But so I don't know. And I don't know what Kingo exactly is supposed to be. Yeah, it's just this this idea of like on our, our like on our civilization. There's another idea actually that I kind of wanted to get into, unless we had more to say about the aliens, which is another sort of like the central thesis of this movie that they keep saying is that there's something inherently special about humans and humanity that inspires this internals to care. Like you know whether it's usually, and I feel like I, we've seen I've seen very variations on this kind of motif before in other movies of like you know. Even though we are all we're, we're hor- humans are horrible and, and do genocide and, and slavery and war and, and all the or- horrible stuff, there's like there's we're still worth saving because of love or art or hope or whatever it is. And I wanted to kind of unpack it because for me this was kind of like the weakest thesis of the movie because just even in the MCU alone, like you know they credit the humans with stopping Thanos, but like there were a lot of people that were not from Earth that helped stop Thanos. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, <laughs> And it, it doesn't, from what we've seen of other planets and cultures, humans do, don't seem to be, they don't seem to have any more or less like humanity than humans, as far as I can tell, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, certainly in the MCU, I mean, all of the other species that we get to know are, yeah, that's actually an interesting point because it's, it's one of my favorite things about old sci-fi actually is that uh, humans are always the like, you know, if we go Star Trek, it's like humans are the the jack of all trades and can do a little bit of everything. But mm-hmm. the Vulcans are super smart and logical. The Klingons are angry and strong. And it's like it's like every it's like we used to imagine other alien species have some like specialized niche of humanity. But then humanity had this broad base of ability to do all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, MCU like extraterrestrials are are just as human as anybody else. Yeah, I mean that was what was hard about. Thor sometimes too in this question of like what makes a god and trying to come up with a definition of it because the very very first god that gore i'm blanking on names now gore the god butcher yeah Yeah. gore and that he kills is a god that none of us as humans would recognize so it's like all right by definition what is he using as a definition of a god and i liked that because it complicated the idea of like not making humans central to all ideas of God, even though God is something that can exist in all these different alien cultures and groups. Um, but at the same time, this movie does come back to the idea it's like, oh, but we're special enough to convert these specifically programmed robots to be empathetic towards us and save us from their programmed purpose, mm-hmm. which is also sci-fi in nature in terms of like, well, robots are not supposed to attack humanity. So, mm-hmm. Although I do love... You know- as we were talking about, this is an awkward fit into the MCU for so many reasons. I love the sort of like pre and the post where, you know, lots of people were commenting when the movie came out, like, so the Eternals just sat by through the whole like Infinity War stuff, like the whole Thanos and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't lift their fingers then. But when the Deviants show up, that's what's really bad. And then in and then the post, <laughs> I love uh, how it, it's become a joke. Like And, and She-Hulk made a, a, a quick joke about it where there's this giant celestial reaching up out of the ocean and mm-hmm. no one ever brings it up. <laughs> like, <Yeah. it> never... <laughs> we, were, we were joking about that with, with Jason last week about like, just in the sense of like if something that huge like emerged out of the ocean, like just the water displacement alone would be like 
catastrophic. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. In terms, like you know, the sea levels would rise, you know, many feet, which would be a problem for everyone. But but yeah, like it is, it is getting sort of messy. And they make a joke. They not a joke, but like he, Kit Harrington. I've, Oh, Dane, that's the character's name. He makes a comment. He's like, why did you sort of sit back through all the horrible things that have happened in, mm-hmm. you know, throughout history, which is like a classic sort of if the gods are question, right? It's a classic yeah. question. Like if the gods are real, why do they not come and, you know, fix things for us? And then usually the answer falls somewhere along the lines of like, we humans have to figure it out for ourselves. Um, you know, they, 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 the, the creators or, or the overseers or whoever can't intervene in the, the experiment mm-hmm. that is us. But then there introduces like actually kind of a really interesting idea that I think just gets kind of stored away where Festus says something to the effect of like, we were put here to give them the tools to sort of grow. Like we were just sort of designed to grow them. And the thing that grows them faster than anything else is actually conflict and war because it's actually like war leads to breakthroughs in technology and medicine that leads to population growth. Mm And like, just like, there's sort of an interesting idea that like the big catalyst in human history for progress, I'm using air quotes, is actually conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd have to, to you know, probe the, the script and look at the exact language here. But I remember certainly I took away a sort of like faux prime directive going on here where like they almost mm-hmm. seem like they were forbidden to interfere with human events except for to protect them from the deviants. I think it's, it seemed to me how they set it up. Is I that, think, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's basically the marching order. But then and this is what drives the wedge between them where eventually they're in um, Tenochtitlan and the the spanish are 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 massacring everyone and this is where a druid has like a breakdown and and basically like splits and he says like you know f the prime directive yeah 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 that was um oh yes that was that was the first time of uh, mesoamerica showing up in the mcu and uh, we are on the cusp as of like uh the next tomorrow i believe uh uh, wakanda forever debut we're gonna see namor yeah uh we're gonna see namor yeah this is this is yeah, <laughs> I've got all kinds of feelings about this, but I haven't even seen that film. Obviously, you know, I, well, I guess maybe some people have seen it now, but uh, I don't know what they're going to do, and I'm very mm-hmm. worried. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be interesting. We'll definitely have to come back and visit that because let's just throw Atlantis uh, kind of in there just for the fun of it. Or at least yeah, I don't well, know and, if it's, and it's not going to be Atlantis anymore, that's right. which is uh, which is like they're seriously retconning Namor uh, and changing, you know, one of Marvel's oldest characters to be something pretty different, uh, to mm-hmm. be a, a Mesoamerican character. And it's now instead of Atlantis, the underwater kingdom is being called Talokan, which is a riff off of Tlalocan, which is an Aztec watery afterlife. Mm. Uh, and so I, I just read an article, I guess it was about the debut, uh, so I don't know if this is, I haven't seen the film, but I just read an article earlier today, in essence suggesting that Namor had led his people into uh, Talokan at the time of conquest to sort of keep them away from or save them from uh, the invaders. So like, apparently that's what's going on, but... There's, there's, I, I was, yeah. This is my own like level of freak out because you know the when the first trailer came out, it's like, what the are they mm-hmm. doing? Mm-hmm. Because uh, there are lots of old 19th century racial cla- racist inspired claims that the Maya and the Aztec could not have built pyramids, etc. And so, you know, that one of the old school explanations was that oh, they maybe they're Atlanteans, and it's like, mm-hmm. wait, you're making the Atlanteans Maya because that's mm-hmm. kind of problematic. 
Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But they, then they recushioned it to Talocan instead of Atlantis. And so there's going to be a whole web of I don't know what they're doing here and we'll see how it comes out. This is purely speculative because like we said, the movie debuts tomorrow. But my sort of just pat read from the trailers is that maybe it's something it's something like an American foil to Wakanda, where it's like yeah. whereas Wakanda is like a was a secret hidden African kingdom that was way more advanced than everything around it. And then maybe Talocan is something to that effect. But yeah, I've had some interesting conversations about this, and I was kind of drifting here away from uh, the the core of Eternals. But there is whatever. This, in my as far as I understand, it seems like Wakanda has been very well received uh, uh, by as a sort of faux African nation that. In, 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 brings in inspiration from lots of different real African cultures, but mm-hmm. blends them into its no its own new thing. Uh, and that seems to have gone over well with most audiences, as far as I understand. And that's, as you, as you said, Colin, that seems to be what they're doing with uh, Talo Khan now, which is very interesting to me because there are obvious Aztec influences and obvious mm-hmm. Maya influences in the way it's being set up so far. And to me, that sets off alarm bells because to this very day, right now, as I did this like a couple of days ago with my students, you can Google search Maya calendar. And one of the first things that comes up is the Aztec sunstone. Mm-hmm. And it's like different cultures, different languages, different time periods. Like these are not the same. And there's a tremendous uh, tendency. One of my old school favorites of this was um, uh, the uh, Hunt for El Dorado. Is that what it was called? There was an early aughts cartoon, uh, the Quest for El Dorado, or, or something like that. The Road like to El Dorado. Road yes. to El Dorado. There yes. we go. Uh, and it, you know, it was did the same thing where it's like you know, it's all these background elements that are not not even Maya. Sometimes they're just generically Latin American background elements. And it's like, my question always was, would, you know, in the Hunchback of Notre Dame cartoon, would they have accepted if, you know, the Colosseum was in the background of Paris? Like mm-hmm. that, that wouldn't have happened. And yet you do this with you know, Latin American or Mesoamerican cultures. And so there's this funny line where it's like, where is, where Wakanda seems to be good and well represented and people like it. Like, where's the difference between sort of drawing on elements and building something new versus misrepresenting diversity and, you know, blurring lines and bringing things together and not knowing, you know, what's what? Yeah, I could see that. Like, why Wakanda is probably so successful and makes sense is because there is Afrofuturism. Like, that is an actual cultural Mm -hmm. movement that, that Wakanda specifically speaks to. Versus, I don't think there's something equivalent to that for Mesoamerican cultures. I, the, the best thing I've read recently is Rebecca Roanhorse's novel, Black Sun, uh, which is not uh, indigenous futurism, but more indigenous fantasy, uh, mm-hmm. where you're taking an indigenous author from the Americas, taking an American cultures and writing fantasy literature based on it. Uh, but So it's similar, but not the same. I think, uh, have, you, have, have either of you read or heard of, is it Gods of Jade and Shadow? Sylvia Moreno Garcia. It's it's sort uh, of like yes, I've seen it but not read it. It's I read it sort of recently, but the the premise is kind of I think what you're describing. It's fantasy, and the premise is a uh, um. It starts it's in Mexico in the 20s, and it starts in the Yucatan, and she finds like, and then she basically gets in contact with like um like a Mayan god of death, uh, and then and and they have to travel. And part of it is like the exploring sort of the mythology, but it's also like a view of like Mexico in the twenties at a time of like rapid modernization and, and all sorts of other sort of in like cultures and influences coming in. Like um, it's an interesting read, but I think it is kind of speaking to a little bit of that kind of, or just that there's a broader influence generally I'm seeing in a lot of like fantasy and YA of, of non Eurocentric Mm-hmm. settings and, and, and inspired settings things like that 
Oh, I was just going to say, it might have made more sense for Namor, Namor to yeah. like... That. Originally Namor, but because it's Mesoamerica now, it's going to be Namor. <laughs> Namor, okay. <laughs> so it might have made more sense to go more of the magical realism route in that mm-hmm. regard. And like, that's just it. He's the first mutant. So yes. like, however mm-hmm. that, or like one of the original mutants. So like, however that's going to, like, that's just it. It's like the source material to start with is problematic and you can retcon it as much as you want, but for it to be recognizable as part of the Marvel universe, it's going to have to fit the source material in some way. So they, just, they were successful with Wakanda. I don't know that they'll be as successful with this one. It is so curious to me because I mean, to how, I mean, phase four has broadened out in so many ways and brought in uh and and i feel like i mean it's been we're only like a year out but i could be wrong i think the eternals has largely dropped off people's radars like it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be one of the the movies that has grabbed people's attention and sort of cut which hits to the same moments of wakanda forever like is it going to repeat the, the are we going to have you know a bunch of like three spin-off not more movies now or are we or is this going to slide off and not be paid attention to i don't know yeah and is harry styles coming back i don't know <laughs> It wouldn't be the first time that, you know, a, a post-credit scene has promised us something and never delivered. Like, you know, there's a lot I, of I was early wondering things. about that. I haven't tried to, like, look them all up again. I, I feel like most of them have delivered the post-credit scenes. Is, is there one that, you, that stands out? There is one, and, and that's in Guardians 2. There's a post-credit scene with the gold people, and she has, like, this pod, and she mm-hmm. talks about she's going to create some kind of, like, perfect being, and that's, a, and that's an allusion to Adam Warlock. And a lot of people mm-hmm. were speculating that he was going to show up for – um, the Thanos stuff, because in the comics, Adam Warlock's kind of a big player in the in the Infinity War uh, series. Okay. But that so far, we have yet to see anything Adam Warlock. Although now it, it all seems so plotted out that it, mm-hmm. it it seems, and they have just all the money in the world to play with. That like mm-hmm. I can't see why we won't necessarily see Harry Styles coming back. But yeah. but then again, like you said, there doesn't seem no one's champing at the bit for Eternals too. Uh, yeah. At least yeah. as far as I can tell. This movie was a bit of a dud commercially and financially, so we'll see. Although, let me see. Let me actually look up the numbers. I, yeah, I haven't looked up the numbers. I, 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 that is certainly the sense and the feel that I have. I've got, you know, I've got a bunch of like college students who are also Marvel fans, and they, they were just kind of like, "What was that yeah. movie? I don't like, get it." <laughs> I think this might just be a testament to the juggernaut that is Marvel, because it had a budget of two hundred million and box office of four hundred and two million, which. I think is I think for most movies would be considered good, but for a yeah. Marvel movie is considered yeah. middling to poor. Like yeah. people were saying that like, oh no, is like Captain Marvel like ruined? It was a complete failure. And people only said that because it didn't make as much money as Black Panther, which made so much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it also came out during the pandemic. So like a lot yeah. of releases, yeah, it had theatrical release, but this is true. Yeah, we can't the, the box office returns during two thousand in twenty twenty one are not exactly indicative of you know, it, there's a weird other factor to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, it's, this also reminds me, it's uh, Jason Colavito, who's a, a skeptic and author who writes a lot about ancient alien stuff too, is, has pointed out several times that the ancient alien TV show is down to about a million uh, viewers an episode. And he, he focuses on TV a lot more and the industry of TV more than I do. And so I, I take him at his word on this that that's bad. <laughs> that that's that that's like that that's a really low number. But every time he says like that's a low number, they have a million people. I'm like, ah, I think yeah. like ten yeah. people came to my last lecture. Like I don't know, yeah. That yeah. a million sounds like a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's well, a lot bigger. It's a lot bigger platform than this. One yeah, we can yeah. say. <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of 
you know, um, what I'm curious about too, with the original source material of Jack Kirby, like them trying to move away from the wink nudge of like, well, this could be true. The film was trying to move away from that. And I, you know, as, as you mentioned, when we talked about Crystal Skull, it's like, okay, they're throwing the aliens right at you yeah. as the oh, premise. Yeah. What do you think about films like this, which allows us to really frame it and think of it more as like this fantasy? It's like, of course, there aren't superheroes just walking around all day doing crazy things and a giant hand reaching out in the middle of the ocean. Wouldn't some people notice if that was going on? Mm-hmm. Like, do you see films like Eternals, which have those roots, but aren't being explicit about it in the remake as more problematic? Or does it help to create a fantasy element more? For me, and I don't know how to, you know, this is definitely my personal opinion. I don't know how to to quantify this or measure this at this point, though. Maybe in a few years we can start seeing the impacts of these films. But I found this film far more uh, problematic where it's like, if you're honest about what you're doing, if you're blunt about what you're doing, uh, then like, you know, it's funny. It's like a, the movie Stargate, for some reason, it does not bother me in the least. Like, it's a very, like, super obviously ancient alien plot line. And, you know, if, if you want to think that's real, you could probably, you know, think it's real before watching the movie. But I think most people are going to watch, you know, Stargate and think, ha, that was funny. Uh, whereas this has that subtlety to it, where it is so heavily indebted to the literature on which it is ultimately based. And that literature is so fundamentally problematic. I mean, there, there is the overarching, like it's, it's kind of one of these things that like how I reach out and talk about this stuff on social media is, is um, I'm less blunt than other people. And I think that there are a variety of reasons why I take the strategy. Um, I don't think most people who watch Ancient Aliens are racist. I don't think most people who watch the show even necessarily realize the racial undertones, even though they're there. And so, I, you know, I think there is a problem of just saying like, hey, the show is racist and walking away because I think that you know, immediately up, uh, turns people off and doesn't sort of build a bridge and, and open doors. But at the same time, like there is fundamentally massively problematic source material to deal with here. I mean, the, the very like the baseline issue is like 90 percent of the examples. Uh, I, I haven't quantified those, so I don't have a data table, but a vast majority of the examples are non-Western. It's like the non-Western people couldn't have done these things. And they only occasionally come in with Western examples of like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe Waldbeck is a problem. Uh, but Von Donneken, uh, as he became more and more famous, especially in the 70s, stopped, um, he stopped caring about like, you know, uh, being shy uh, about what he was doing. And there is Gold of the Gods is his one of his books in the 70s where he outright uh, talks about things like he, he, you know, paraphrasing here, he suggests that the black race was a failure uh, of alien engineering. Uh, and he implies that white Europeans are the favored creation of these alien beings. And that's sort of where it's like I'm saying towards the beginning where it's like there is hugely problematic racial undertones to all of this. And then we have this Marvel coming in and saying, no, 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 we're going to bring in uh, Chloe Zhao. We're going to bring in a diverse cast. We're going to have, you know, a deaf person. We're going to have a gay couple. Uh, We're going to, you know, and it's like, and I applaud those efforts. And I think those are important representational efforts in Hollywood and need to be happening, need to be happening more. But when you put that cloak on top of fundamentally racist source material, you know, I don't know how, you know, this is, 
this is like the classic like people yell at me all the time where it's like it's just a movie watch it or don't watch it who cares and it's like you know, I, I do this experiment in in, uh, in my class all the time, not with ancient aliens, but with Atlantis. And, uh, and I'll just go into the classroom and say, hey, what do you know about Atlantis? Anything. Go. Tell me. And, and I start pulling stuff out. And then it's like, all right, how do you know that? And they, they you know, some of them will you know, know. Yeah, it's like someone like Disney or, you know, Aquaman or Plato. And they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they know, you know, that there's sort of maybe something real here, but they're not sure what's real and what's not real. And so I think the more you muddy these waters and the more you play with like, oh, this is just a fun idea, but we're really playing with something that people actually think is true that you get into this really weird nebulous space. I, I, I don't know. I've actually been wondering this and I, I realized I don't know the answer of when or how Thor became an alien. Like, I don't know if that's it's purely an MCU conversion because certainly in the sixties, he reads kind of like more just straight up Norse God. And I don't know if when he became an extraterrestrial in this process. One of the kind of like, uh, I'm, I don't have a, a solid grasp on this so if there's any comic historians listening they might be able to help us out but but from my understanding is like in the sort of early issues of thor there was kind of operating under this assumption that like if there is a mythological system it's real like asgard was real olympus is real you know odin can go talk to zeus can go talk to quetzalcoatl can all this stuff And and they do this sometimes where like these different pantheons will meet up and then produce, you know, figures and heroes and, and stuff like that. And and I think in the original Thor, the way it actually worked was like Thor like would there was like a guy, Donald Blake, that Thor would just like possess his body and the guy mm, just yes, like turned right. into Thor. Forgot about uh, that. <laughs> but then then there was a later Thor in I wanna say like the early two there was a run or a version of Thor, and I forget what the run is called, or like the 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 un- that particular universe is called, where it was like they hedged it a little and it was sort of like you didn't actually ever really know like you never saw Asgard or Odin and it was always sort of unclear whether it was Thor like actually a god or is he like a crazy person um <laughs> or or you know it's it's like they never it's it's a little unclear exactly if like Thor's claims of divinity are actually true um but then so in the MCU at least like the first two Thor movies are pretty pretty emphatic that it's like like Thor gives I think a whole lecture to Jane in, in the first one where he's like you call it magic we call it or you call it science we call it magic it's the same thing uh and i think odin in the second one says something he's like we're not gods we're just you know we're just space beings who live longer and are stronger but then in when the, in the taika movies it gets walked back a little bit where there he obviously in the most recent one very explicitly but there's like no we are gods we are like worshipped as a pantheon by mortals and we got into this with, with jason last week of like what exactly determines who who is and is not a god and and why is a little confusing for all the reasons we just said but it seems to be that like yes thor is a god and loki is a god and odin is a god although uh got to do a little like hulk uh like puny god going on here too right where it's like yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, it, and then it gets, it just also like becomes, it opens up all of these sort of questions of like, you know, is he a God or is he just like, I think there's a joke somebody said, or in Korg probably says it's like, he's a space Viking. Um, yeah. That's basically what he is. So, and it, and also like, even in like in the Marvel comics, it becomes very weird and convoluted because like where you have that, the presupp- presupposition that like the gods and the mythological system, they're all real and these are actual gods. But then you've also got the Jack Kirby stuff of like, so like you have Athena and Thena like are two different people, mm-hmm. but there's like a natural contradiction going on there of what's going on. 
Well, and as you were explaining it, I find it like a little ironic that we have not touched on the Judeo-Christian God. Like God with mm-hmm. a capital G is very much left out of this entire picture. Oh, there, but there is one good line from one of the early days where Captain America says, "Like there is only one God, and he doesn't dress mm-hmm. like that or something." You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, there seems to be at least a distinction between like lowercase G, you know, mm-hmm. who are just more like super powerful entities, however you describe it, but like people, sort of in a very like kind of in like the Greco-Roman or the Norse sense that they're just like they're almost analogous to like kings or emperors or whoever. Mm-hmm. And then God, who like we were sort of talking in the Thor, like some a figure like the Celestials or, or the Eternity is the closest thing we kind of get to in that they're like sort of a cosmic, timeless being or something. That's like that. what I was just thinking. I mean, we haven't really equated and I'm not sure if how often it is directly stated of Celestials as gods and all of this. But mm-hmm. truly what Eternals was in some way, especially if you look at the opening text uh, to the mm-hmm. film, like they're it's very like. Like, here is the cosmic origin of, you know, the MCU. Mm-hmm. And the Celestials are laid out as its creators, basically. And uh, and yet they become sort of evil creators, as we f- see at the end of this movie. Uh, you know, I don't know how much they will play with Celestials moving forward, but you have sort of an Ur-Creator God set going on here now. So this was kind of my, like, sort of the moral dilemma at kind of in the third act of the movie they say something like, like, who are we to like stop the birth of a celestial? And it's like the, you know, cause the celestials will go on to create stars and galaxies and planets, which will have billions of lives or civilizations or whatever. And like from my, my walk away, when I first saw the movie and I walked out and I'm like, well, the end of the movie was a big, basically it was a big metaphor for abortion. Whereas like we're debating whether or not, okay, you know, sure. the, if the, you know, the celestial, like it's, do we stop the potential life sort of to save the existing life? Um, and that was sort of my whole read on it. But to walk it back a little bit, actually, to, to Christy's question and what David was saying, I'm jumping all over the place because my tea <laughs> is kicking in and it's a little bit too late for me to be drinking caffeine. Uh, but the the initial question of like, yeah, it, there, there is, I, I worry a little bit because the movie is so very like humanist in a way where it's very pro human and you know it loves yeah. the movie loves love right and and i think this is one of the only marvel movies where we actually have like an explicit sex scene it is the first one actually yep y- yeah Officially. we have all sorts of different couples um interracial couple we have multiple interracial couples we have gay couples we have people signing and you know it's a very sort of like pro-human and like pro sort of diversity in in, in all its many ways and like which is something i like about the movie very much but then that becomes almost a sort of Trojan horse for like the kernel, you know, the the celestial growing inside of it that's going to grow up and blow up the whole planet is this like this assumption that like human, the, the movie is simultaneously kind of at odds with itself where it's like humans are great and wonderful and special, but also toddlers that need, you know, a guiding hand mm-hmm. at all times. But so uh, that was sort of a that wasn't really an answer to your question, but it, it it's it's a it's a worry I have and a concern. I mean, that's just it too. Is like yeah, I think say muddying it. It's very easy to address something that is like, well, here's aliens, and it's like, and it's like, all right, this is the ideas we're connecting with that, and we can look at the history of archaeology and be like, you know, before aliens, this was how we were explaining the mound builders in the united states this is how we're explaining that and it's really easy to draw those connections and then when you 
dress it up the way it is in this film, it's so much more difficult to like draw those parallels to real historical ways we have thought about the past. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, if we continue to produce movies and shows like that, um, I, I didn't realize, but I know that a show that came out on Hulu recently, was it Prey that's tied yep. to the Predator um, mm -hmm. thing? And so I haven't watched it. I've heard really great, like it's I've good. heard I great like things it. about it. Mm -hmm. And then I, but I just, you know, did the premise of what Predator was all about. Cause I knew that was a Arnold Schwarzenegger movie originally. And I'm just like, Oh my God! It's ancient aliens in a whole nother form. Well, in this case, so. though, they're coming here to kill us. We don't well, learn yeah, anything but, from them. But uh. still, it was like, wow! Like, yeah, they they did a new spin on it. But it's like this is literally everywhere, and it's very popular. That's the thing is that you know, for me as a scholar trying to research and talk about the origin and development of these ideas, nothing here is new by a long shot. Mm -hmm. And that's where, I mean, ultimately these ideas, you know, it's uh, so like, if you go back to the Von Donneken's uh, 1968 book, you know, one of his main arguments are that, you know, humans would have mistaken aliens as gods and that the, any alien technology would have been perceived as magic. Um, that was already a trope. That wasn't like it hadn't happened once or twice in science fiction in the you know, 60s, 50s, 40s, and 30s. Like it was a trope by the time you get to Von Donneke. I actually love at least the oldest uh, story that I'm aware of, of the quote unquote uh, aliens building the pyramids, as in the Giza pyramids, actually comes from the 1890s. Uh, you know, it's like this is not a new idea in any way, shape, or form, and it's there's a lot, there's a ton of fictional claims uh, that these ideas are real, or, or that the that the you know there's fictional claims that that, are, that overlap with uh, people then starting to decide, well maybe these are real, maybe they're not, I don't know, and so it's just so funny that you know like I said, Kirby has this issue of, of the Fantastic Four which echoes the plot of Eternals number one, but except the first one comes out before Von Donneke and the second one comes out after Von Donneke. And there's a very real way where like the Eternals was riding on Von Donneke's coattails, mm. like where he was, he was a superstar in the seventies. He really was. And uh, he was getting on the talk shows and getting everywhere and his books were selling like hotcakes and it was really problematic. And so it's, it's, it sits at the origin too for sort of the modern paranormal TV world. Cause of course, ancient aliens, is, you know, riff off of Von Donneken, but uh, you know, the, the old 70s show In Search Of got its uh, big kick off of Ancient Aliens as well. And it, you know, is pretty much the entire genre of, you know, paranormal TV show now kind of has its origin from these places. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of think, I don't know, I look out at the world around us and I see people having trouble deciding what's real and what's not. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe, you know, all of these TV shows and books have been kind of a problem. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and and that's also kind of just it. We're like, I mean, every creative work is a product of times, but comics very much so are like, you know, the kinds of heroes and superheroes that get made are very much like the products of their time, culture, environment. Captain America being a very obvious one, you yes. know, coming out of the 40s and what was going on then. And it makes sort of sense because like in the 60s and 70s where there was this sort of, you know, wave of like spiritualism and and you know, interest in the mysticism and the occult and, and like, you know, non-Western religions and things like that, which like very much Jack Kirby is like, that was his, you know, that was his vibe or like, oh, you know, yeah. the, the early sci-fi stuff. So like before doing the Eternals, Jack, you mentioned that he had this falling, I say Jack, like I knew him, um, but Kirby had this falling out with, with Marvel and Stan Lee and he went over to DC and then at DC while he was there, he basically like 
seeded the DC comics with all with basically the the same thing as the Eternals, but in DC it's the new gods and the, the idea gods, that yeah. like mm-hmm. these these um, powerful space beings are the sort of origins for human mythological systems, and that's actually where we get um oh god, what's his name uh dark side and um a lot he actually he the first appearance of dark side was in a jimmy olsen comic because when jack kirby <laughs> went to dc he he they, they were like well you're gonna work here you think you're hot shit we're gonna put you on the crappiest detail ever which was the jimmy olsen comic you know superman's friend jimmy olsen and jack kirby work creates this whole like new world of the new gods that becomes crazy and he creates one of the biggest dc characters ever and then he comes back to marvel and then he gets he's basically like all right now i'm gonna do you know that I'm going to really dig into my, you know, the deviants and the eternals and the celestials and, and all that stuff very much is like born out of like what was happening just sort of in like pop culture. And I guess like, you know, the West, you know, New York West village, that, that zone yeah. in the seventies. Oh, yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if some of the danger, especially with Marvel movies, like I remember when Titanic came out and I hadn't, I had seen it and I, one of my friends had seen it. I was like in third grade and my friend to me made the comment of like only 36 people survived um, the sinking of the Titanic. And I'm like, that's not right. Like, how did you get that? And it was Mm -hmm. like at the end of the movie, it has this little title screen of like only 36 people pulled from the water survived. But like that really simple connection made by a young child that that's kind of what I'm contemplating with like Marvel, why it's mass appeal is it's like superheroes are just as much for fairly young children as it is for adults. So adults might be able to, discern you know what is pure fantasy um more but like for children like that's not the case and i think that might be where some of this danger is too i'm I'm skeptical even about the adults i don't know if you've ever been i know but like (laughs) but like i can clearly see like how a you know a third grader going to these movies would like Mm -hmm. if you've seen a bunch of these and that's your idea you're not you definitely aren't really questioning it at that point yeah, it's a really hard line because uh, it's it's also one of these things where I don't expect and don't and I know that creators, comic book uh, drawers, uh, you know, special effects people, movies people, like their their job is not to write history books. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I'm totally down with the idea that they they don't have to, shouldn't have to be perfectly 100% accurate at all times, but there are certain types of mistakes that are made that are more impactful or more problematic in some mm-hmm. way, shapes and form, you know, and there are mistakes, you know, to like, like I joked, I mean, it's like, you know, the Hunchback of Notre Dame cartoon wasn't going to have the Coliseum in the background, like that mm-hmm. your audience will pick up on or won't pick up on or will ignore. And, you know, we, we all do this. You know, that's, that's like I said, I get, I get this all the time on social media whenever I try to talk about this stuff. Like, it's just a movie. Just watch it. And it's like, yeah, like, you know it's fiction. Like, adults, at least. We know it's fiction going in. But five years later, ten years later, where did I hear that? Like, was it mm-hmm. a documentary? Was it on Netflix? Was it somewhere else? Like, there's – we all do this. It all sort of fades into this zeitgeist moment where, if it, you know, if it's a movie you loved and you watch over and over again, maybe not – but, you know, it's like if you watch the if you watch the Eternals and then 10 years later, like, you know, some old episode of Ancient Aliens pops on TV, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Gods in Babylon, they they protected people. Right. I know that I've seen that. And it's mm-hmm. and I and I don't and this is one of those things where I'm not like 
this is normal human psychology as far as I, I'm not a psychologist, let's put that out there. <laughs> but like, this seems to be like normal human memory, like where we just things slur together all the time. And so mm-hmm. I, I think creators need to, at the very least, have some cognizance or awareness of like, what could people do with my work mm-hmm. and, and be prepared for that at the very least. Yeah. A good example of that is Rick Rorden, who did um, Percy Jackson. And when it was brought to his attention, like how much he's reinforcing what ideas of Western civilization um, in his books, he really, with that awareness, like changed course and addressed a lot of those problems. But because um, there's an Eidolon article that I, I like having my college students read because they grew up on Percy Jackson mm-hmm. and it's called The Whitening Thief. Like his very first book really is playing into these ideas unintentionally because that's just something that we are not cognizant of. It's just part of our culture. And until it's pointed out and addressed, like I, it is possible for creators to do something about that. But but it's also very easy to let it creep into our art, our, our creations, because it's just everywhere. It, well, so. and it also it, it, it feeds into itself where it's like in the same way that I think like guys like Kirby are just kind of riffing off like what's in the it, what's in the air at the time. Like mm-hmm. it also like if this stuff sort of permeating and just the general cultural, I don't know, d- diffusion, diffusion, uh-huh. excuse me, or whatever it is, <laughs> then it ends up getting worked into a movie or a book or a TV show or something like that. And then, you know, it, it, it reproduces that way. Mm hmm. Yeah, I was really trying to chase some Doctor Strange uh, stuff a while ago. Of like, you know, where is Kirby? Like, I was, I was really trying to hunt down like where is Kirby like specifically drawing some of his influences because there's a lot of references to some, some pretty close echoes to specific references to things happening in the spiritualism movement in the paranormal world, and it's like I can never quite. It's like it's this elusive, slippery thing where I think. I don't think he actually was, you know, I really wanted him to be sitting down with a bunch of paranormal books and just copying them into comic books, but I don't think that's what he was actually doing. I think it's just, Mm -hmm. he's one way or another hearing about it secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand, and just, it just slips out Mm -hmm. and and into his, his work. And I think especially, I, especially that early sixties stuff when Dr. Strange is first produced, the rate of production that Marvel and Kirby in particular is doing, like they are coming up with new characters constantly and pushing out books constantly. And it's mostly running right through his art desk. And it's, I I think it is, you know, just this like, like everything in my head, I'm going to vomit onto these pages and it comes out in this slew that's heavily influenced by, and yet you can't actually trace it down. Like it's, what what was it? Um, yeah, was, uh, my colleague uh, Jeb Card was very interested in the idea that uh, that Kirby might have been copying the Shaver Mysteries uh, with the creation of the Eternals. And the Shaver Mysteries is one of these like 1940s uh, pulp fiction uh, stories about some underground Deros and Deros and Theros. I think I have that right. There's there's underground bad guys and above ground good guys, and there are some very real echoes. Uh, to what Kirby produces, and so I, 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 I agree with Jeb. I'm just not sure it was deliberate. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not sure like Kirby even realized what he was doing. We we were talking about this also, not to bring it back to uh, Thor again, but of like like the way that like the Marvel cosmology is kind of set up, where you have like this like these celestial beings, there are sort of these cosmic or these cosmic forces that that sort of give birth to sort of lower order deities and other things is, is incredibly reminiscent of like Hesiod's Theogony, for example. And like, you know, had he read the Theogony? And like, I kind of suspect not, but I think there's just these ideas about pantheons and, and myth- mythological systems are just sort of out there in the soup. And that's what he's sort of pulling from. 
I'm I'm kicking myself. I can't remember the name of the scholar right now, but I saw a paper uh, a couple of years ago comparing Silver Surfer to uh, uh, Odysseus. Yeah, and it was like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a lot of strong parallels here. <laughs> mm-hmm. We gotta you, you send me their name later because we gotta have them on for our, our segment where yeah. we make connection extremely strained and incredibly forced <laughs> where we make these kinds of uh, connections. Um, but yeah, exactly. Like there, it's in. I mean, even if they've read, you know, the introduction to whatever it is, the Odyssey, or, or they read it once in school when they were in eighth grade, and then it, it you know, it lurks in the memory in, in some sort of some form of it, and then it ends up getting, you know, propagated and it comes out in whatever the, the thing is. And but then sometimes, like we were sort of saying, that idea is kind of rooted in a a problematic notion, like the idea that human beings can't do anything for ourselves, or that like mm-hmm. we couldn't have done all of our technology is indebted to some other benefactor. That brings me to like one question, um, probably my last question, but it's been sitting in my head for a long time is um, the big event for the break, which also marks the like final death of the deviant until like the start of the movie is the Spanish conquest of Tenochtitlan in 1521. And I was wondering what our thoughts are is like, why was that the event that becomes the breaking point? Like what is truly significant of that? from all other previous genocide events that have taken place historically. Why do I, and I don't know if that's in the source material, if they chose that for the movie, but I'm no, really yeah, that's definitely that. just in the movie. As far as I'm aware, you know, I, I was just actually recording a lecture for this for my students today. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I suspect it was random in terms of the movie makers. Uh, I could be wrong. They might've wanted to get Tenochtitlan on the screen somehow or, but um, it is, the, the arrival of Europeans in the Americas is, as far as I'm aware, uh, the beginning of the greatest uh, pan- epidemic uh, with the greatest loss of life that the globe has ever seen. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't talk about this enough in school. My students are always sort of floored when I, tr- I lay this out. But I mean, 60, like 60 percent, like we're, they always know it. They always know the plague in Europe. I'm like, how many people died in Europe during the plague? And, and there's always a couple of people in the room who know it's like, oh, it's about one third of Europe. Like the conservative estimate for the Americas is that two thirds of mm-hmm. all indigenous Americans died, many of them without ever even meeting a, a European because the diseases traveled faster than the people did. I, I, I am just speaking off the cuff. I do not know, but I, I would suspect this is the beginning of the, the worst tragedy in human history in terms of loss of life in one mm-hmm. moment or one sort of event. Uh, and it's hardly talked about, at least in Western educational models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As to why it was put in the movie, I really, I only have two thoughts. And, and one is just because I think it lines up with the timeline they're kind of setting up where if they arrive, I forget when it is they arrive in Earth, 7,000 years ago. So they arrive in 5,000 BC. And then, you know, then we, we check in on them every couple hundred years because it's like Babylon, Gupta, India. They mention classical Greece a couple of times or Macedonia, and then they've diffused elsewhere and so like in terms of like a big sort of a world event they needed you know they broke up 500 years ago which basically puts that right around the right timeline the other thought i'm having is that it's just in terms of it's a more recognizable because i think part of what they're also going for is just recognition and like Mm -hmm. skirting the line they don't go they don't necessarily go like straight to say like the Giza pyramids which is probably like maybe one of the most iconic sites but like they've got babylon and the gates which are it's a thing that people probably are maybe vaguely aware of, at least in some capacity. But with the the Americas, like there is a sort of general, uh, there's an awareness. So like we see it on screen and, and we, the audience, immediately know what's happening. We don't need it to be spelled out as opposed to if you pick some more 
obscure or maybe just less taught historical event. So it serves as sort of a, it, the shorthand is effective there for communicating to the audience that like, we know what's happening. We don't need it. You don't, someone doesn't need to come out and be like, this is the situation. Mm-hmm. And it also, I think, speaks also just to like the current climate, particularly in North America, where like now where we fewer and fewer cities are celebrating Columbus Day, we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day and things like that. And I think it feeds into just that sort of general movement and a, and a, and a reckoning with the past history of colonization in, in the Americas. So that's sort of my short answer. Yeah. I was, yeah, I think my question, like part of it was like, was that in the source material? Because it also just flattened out that event as if like, oh, it was the Europeans who came and did this killing. And yes, the plagues definitely wiped out massive amounts of people. We see that in ice cores to the point, like, I think archeo- some archaeologists have looked at ice cores and believe that so many people died in the Americas that um, there was enough growth of the trees that resulted that probably uh, contributed to the little ice age because there was that much more um, mm-hmm. oxygen in our yeah. in our atmosphere, mm-hmm. which is mind blowing to think about. But in terms of like the intricacies of that conflict, it, your Cortez would not have succeeded without the involvement of other indigenous people. Um, And like, so I think what I was also frustrated about that was like, it really flattened that and made it once again, look like Europeans versus indigenous people. And obviously who wins because they had the advanced technology given to them by the Eternals. And I'm like, damn it. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, as there is, there's a lot of that going on there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's also all sorts of, I mean, I have all sorts of the rabbit holes that I often go down of like picking apart the little logic problems, which is like, my question is like, how actually involved is Festus in our technological process? Because when when we have a, we have a very short scene, a very sort of odd scene, I, I think, where basically following um, like Hiroshima and, and the first atomic bomb. And he basically says, like, this is my fault, like, because I gave them I gave them, yeah. uh, you know, whatever it was thousands of years ago or it's unclear whether like like did he work on like i don't think he worked on that project but like he you know is all technology does all technology come back to him which is a pretty wild implication Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's like they really try to show it like of like that you know what ajak selma hayek's character ajak tries to keep him in check and whatnot Uh, it's like oh no like don't give them that stuff yet or let them Mm -hmm. figure it out themselves but that scene in particular implies that like you know hephaestus certainly thinks human technology is all his you know on him and mm-hmm. so, you know, that again, apparently we couldn't do anything on our own. I yeah. don't know. And again, also, it, it comes back to, I think, a more a more interesting theme that is sort of like not as explored, which is that like, like conflict and war being a, the, a great mover of sort of like technology and from like how many sort of technological advancements, even ones like in fields of like medicine and communications, like emerged out of wars. I'm also, it's partially on the brain because I just recently rewatched 2001 Space Odyssey where like the kind of thesis, like the first scene is basically the thesis of that is like weapon violence is what elevates us from monkeys into, you know, space stations or whatever. But then also it's kind of just more of the same thing. Well, that that was specifically uh, Raymond Dart's idea too, though, like where Arthur C. Clarke was cribbing off of Raymond Dart, who was an early paleontologist or a paleoanthropologist who what proposed the osteodontocaratic tool system being used mm-hmm. by australopithecines. And mm-hmm. I saw, I remember, I will never forget, uh, like when I was an undergrad, one of our uh, professors showed us a video interviewing Dart 
about this, and Dart was explicit about violence being a motivating factor in hominin evolution. And he, he had some, like, I don't know, like jawbone or something, and he's like, and they took the jawbone and stabbed it into the neck of the other hominins. And I was like, oh. <laughs> it's like, I think there's like a, a joke in community like that where it's like, it's like you're giving, I think it's Betty White is like their anthropology professor. And she's yeah. like, well, you have to like, what's the greatest invention that humans have made? And then at the end, he gives some sort of stirring speech about compassion. And then she's like, no, it's this crossbow that I invented. And then she shoots him <laughs> in the leg with it. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Like, I think the other argument, at least in terms of not necessarily advancement of technology, but where we get stratification within society is often, to me, tied to um, the development of agriculture and mm. sedentary lifestyles where you have to delegate the, tasks. To the people. division of labor leading yeah, to the it's first. Like, oh, we really screwed ourselves. So maybe that plow that um, he was working on was more dangerous yeah, than anything. Yeah, the, the, the plow invents the caste system or whatever it is, or you <laughs> yep. know, yep. social so. hierarchies. <laughs> well, so maybe my, my sort of thesis about this, this movie is it actually might have just worked better as a, a TV show, because I think it just has sort of narrative problems and things like that and structure. It has a big villain problem, I think, where the main villain disappears and then comes back randomly at the end. But well, you know, they, they wanted to do a cosmology movie. At least I would, I think they want to do a cosmology movie, especially again with that intro text and whatnot. But then mm -hmm. this is, I don't know what the 20, 20th, 24th, 25th Marvel movie. They've already got a cosmology yeah. sort of built movie by movie. And I think they wanted to make something bigger and grander, but kept like bumping into things that didn't make sense. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. You know, it was too late to do which movie. also is kind of interesting given the choice of, of director because because Chloe Zhao to me at least kind of the strength of so many of her films is that it they're deeply kind of introspective and and inward mm -hmm. you know in inwardly focused on the lives of their characters which we get a little bit but maybe not enough of like we get the stuff with uh sprite sort of never being like the thing the reason she resents humanity is because they remind her of all the things she can't have like growing up and having a family and things like that or you know, the, again, I sort of see the, the, the main division, like the, the ideological division between like Icarus and, and Cersei is, is almost like a faith-based one. Whereas, you know, Icarus is, is loyal to Arishem, his, his sort of the doctrine, the creator, the creed or whatever. And then, uh, whereas the other ones are more progress or radical in some way. And so, yeah, the, the kind of central, like the, the sort of psychological levels of what's going on for these people who also find out, like they actually find out the reason for which they've been created. And it's sort of, shatters their whole worldview and sense of purpose but yeah and again I, I don't know i wonder if there's maybe there's just like too many characters too many things too many themes and none of it necessarily rises to the top but yeah. it's the hardness of an ensemble pick a superhero movie like the more characters you add the harder it gets mm -hmm. there's a reason yeah. the avengers movie came after yeah everyone had their own standalone film for a long well like yeah with like guardians there's only what five guardians I think, uh, yeah, and there are how many Eternals are there? I think there's like nine Eternals or something. Yeah. yeah, and it becomes hard. And then ultimately, we sort of lose like like you know, I I could have really used a lot more Makari, um, who was to yeah. me a more interesting character. Like, why was she collecting all of these artifacts and and stealing secrets? And partly it's because she's supposed to be Mercury, but like that whole character for me felt very underserved. But there's just no room for it. This is only a two and a half hour movie. And then we also have to do, because it's an MCU in phase four, we got to also do a lot of table setting for Black Knight at the end, everything with Kit, Kit Harrington and whatever that's going to be. 
Yeah, if that, I don't know. I feel that feels like one of the the cliffhangers that's not going to come through. I don't know. I haven't heard anything, but well, so I think so. The other thing, I what I what I sort of know is that the voice that that talks to him in that very end, Chris, that's Mahershala Ali, who's going to be Blade. But I as I understand, the production of Blade okay. is being held up. There's some problem with Blade, and I think he's and he might have. There's like some dimension of the universe they're spinning off that's more of like like monster hunters and and dark yeah. magic and that kind of thing. And I think Black Knight fits into that. But I don't know when that will ever uh, when that will ever come to light. And again, like Harry Styles and Pip the Troll, and like what that all is. So uh, we're we're just over an hour now, and Dave, I don't want to keep you too late because it's it's I'm sure approaching um, everyone's bedtime. Yes. Uh, but any final thoughts people want to end end with final verdicts. Oh, I was going to say, the one thing I found hilarious is that the joke being made how uh, Angelina Jolie got to do all of the poses that Brad Pitt got to do in Troy with the spear. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? That's I appreciate good. that. Bravo. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, that, Colin, you brought up the the, the Sprite storyline. I think you're, that was one of the good, like, that was one of the more impactful personal stories that is in here. I, I, I think there are great individual moments in this film i think there are good actors in this film and good characters in this film and i think i think they really intended to make a film that represented sort of the best of humanity in some way Mm -hmm. shape or form and it's just back to you know where i started it's like why did you pick this this storyline i i love my comic books i like my boxes over here like i Mm -hmm. I can get you like a bunch of other like storylines that you could have done a great human interest piece with if you weren't going to bother like tying Thanos in here, why did we do this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep it, th- keep this one on the shelf. Maybe, maybe if yeah. there's not an Eternals yeah. too, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> it would not we'll be see. the worst. Yeah. We could, this, this, hopefully this is one of the threads that, that just doesn't get picked back up. I mean, I, I at least maybe just want somebody to kind of mention, it seems in, the most insane thing about this whole movie is that a giant statue emerges out of the Indian ocean and nobody talks about it ever. Ever. It's done. That, it's that, sitting that, there. There was a giant stone person living inside the planet, and we had no idea. And now there's just a huge statue in the middle of the ocean. Although that does feel very 2022, where it's just like, I don't know, mm-hmm. I gotta go well, to work. Well, <laughs> that's like, wasn't there a thing where, like, the, the, the Navy, like, said, like, we have all of these, like, like unidentified flying objects, and we truly have no idea what they are. Do with that what you will. And people were like, Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, the yeah, news. Gotta, yeah. <laughs> Um, I gotta make dinner. I gotta do laundry. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> the, the weirder stuff is happening. So yeah, I think we'll we'll end it there. But David, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Hope we didn't keep you too late or ruin well, your thank, evening. <laughs> thank you all for having me again. I appreciate it, and uh, we will we'll come back for Wakanda Forever at some point. I'm sure. Yes, I'm probably gonna yeah. go try to see that this weekend, and and we'll, we gotta we gotta come back and talk Namor or Namor. Uh, is there anything if people want to uh, see or hear more from you? Uh, where can they do that? <laughs> Uh, the easiest, you know, I, I am trying, I, we, we were talking at the beginning here, I don't know what I'm going to do with my Twitter, I don't know, Twitter's kind of like its own dumpster fire right now, but that's mm-hmm. usually where people find me, at DSA Archaeology. I've got the same thing, I've got a DSA Archaeology over on uh, Instagram and Facebook, and uh, I just set up a Mastodon. I don't, I don't know how people find you on Mastodon yet, but uh, uh, there is a DSA Archaeology on Mastodon as well, so you can find me on the socials in all different places. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, as usual, uh, listeners, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, MoviesWeDig.com. Follow us. Again, we'll, we're tentatively keeping, we're sticking around on Twitter, though we're not that active on Twitter. But we're, you can still, for the time being, find us at, at Dig Movies. 
thank you again everyone for coming by and uh, I'll, I'll see you, I'll see you again soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.